Superliminal Iron, Episode 1, They'd Rather See Us Dead. Well, good afternoon, good evening, and good morning. I don't know what time of day you have taken it upon yourself to listen to me, but I'm happy you're doing so. You're listening to Superliminal Iron. My name is Timothy L. Williams. I am <clears throat> resident of the City of West Hollywood, and I am a candidate for the City of West Hollywood's City Council. And I found out on yesterday, um, thanks to WeHoVille.com, the largest publication here in the City of West Hollywood, that I will be the first African-American or black candidate for City Council here in the City of West Hollywood ever. The city was incorporated on ni- in 1984, um, and since that time, they have not had, over, it's been about 33 years, they have not had a single black person that has stood for election for city council. And, and I just, I just was so overcome with, you know, just such emotion, because I think that's beautiful. I think it's wonderful. I'm, I'm, I'm overjoyed to be able to be a part of black history, West Hollywood history, and, and human history. You know, any time that one of these things happens where it's the first of something, it is a message to the world of growth. It is a message to the world of inclusion. <clears throat> and is it a message to the world that, that the city of West Hollywood is a sanctuary. It is a place where people can feel protected and they will be celebrated. And I just am so happy to further that legacy you know, of our wonderful creative city that I have grown to love so much over the last two years. Um, well, we're just going to get right into it. You are in for a treat today because this is the inaugural episode of my podcast, my name being Timothy L. Williams, in case you forgot <laughs> since I last introduced myself. Um, and my goal behind this is to... First of all, do something. You know, I filed for filed for city council, my candidacy, and I'm organizing my campaign and everything, and that feels great. But it's not enough. Um, I feel like there is an ongoing conversation, a national conversation that has been put upon us and you know granted to us by way of social media and the internet. And that's wonderful in a lot of respects, but in a lot of other ways, it's, it's a little scary. Some of the things that people say online are just absolutely inhumane, in my opinion. It, like, I mean, just where is your humanness is what I want to ask a lot of people when I um, see the trolling that occurs on, online. Um, but that's beside the point. The motivation behind the hurtful comments or the arguments or the times you may have deleted somebody off of your Facebook. The motivation behind those is what I care about. The second word in the title of my show is ire, which is spelled I-R-E. And ire means intense and usually openly displayed anger. And that's what ire is, according to Merriam-Webster. And they've been around since 1828, so I trust them. Ire is a noun that just simply says intense or usually openly displayed anger. I don't know if you were around um, during this most recent presidential election, but there was a lot of ire. There was a lot of ire. I mean, it's everywhere. It was, it 
took a hold of the entire Republican Party for the most part. And within the other side, um, President, or not, excuse me, um, Senator Bernie Sanders, he, you know, he really was able to capture the frustration of middle America, of middle class America, of the 99%. I'm, I'm a 99%er, you know, 100%. <laughs> um, and I celebrate it. But I do also acknowledge that there's something that's wrong in our system. You know, there's something that is wrong. We live in an age where we have become victims of political correctness. We have become victims of our own desire to have some sort of some kind of civil discourse. You know, the United States of America as the youngest democracy in the world, for the most part. Um, we have maintained. We have maintained our sovereignty, and we have maintained our placement in the world by way of transfers of power that occurred, on the very least, you know, every eight years. And that's huge. You look at any other developing part of the world, and there is one of many. There's one common theme I find is that it's just the barbarism of the institutions of government and of the people themselves. Um, and that barbarism, that barbaric nature, is that's, that's the ire. That's the ire I'm talking about. People are pissed the fuck off right now. Pardon my language. Um, yes, I don't believe in, you know, being a potty mouth, but I will never shy away from saying a word if I need it to express myself. Um, so people are pissed the fuck off. And they, I feel that they have reason to be. Um, you know, we, in our effort to be politically correct, we fell in, we, and when I, by the way, when I say we, I'm referring to Americans. Um, full disclosure, I am a landlocked American that has yet to leave the country. Um, and it's not because I don't want to, it's just a matter of, I'm building and creating, um, but I'm going to get there. Um, so back to my point is that we have got to do something with this, this energy. Because what's happening is, is that nefarious, predatory actors akin to that of Hitler or Mussolini have stepped into the American electorate and are try and are capitalizing financially, socially, um, however any any possible they are, they are capitalizing and they are benefiting um, financially and socially from this. They're benefiting from this the ire this intense and unusually openly displayed anger. That's what they're benefiting from. If you look at any one of the Trump rallies, there was a number of um, just very intense rallies that the people were even, that either his supporters were screaming angrily or there was a lot of fist shaking or there was full on altercations. And so the, clearly the ire, it's real. It is real. 
It is intense and it is being openly displayed and it is angry. So therefore, it is, it, it, it's, the, it's our American ire. And I say our because we're in this together. You know, we like to divide the states up every four years, blue versus red. But I am you and you are me. And together we are we. We the people of the United States of America in order to form a more perfect union. That, that is, those are the founding words of the, of the American idea, of the American experiment. We the people, in order, I'm sorry, excuse me, we the people of the United States of America, in order to form a more perfect union. And that more, it just simply says that we're going to keep striving for that next level of perfection. So, okay, that's great. We're all striving for perfection, but what do we do? Clearly, we all have different ideas about what a perfect America looks like and what a perfect America does not. So, so what we have here is that the ire, the American ire, binds us. Because no matter where you are, no matter where you go, you're going to find somebody who lost something they worked really, really hard for between the years of, between the years of 2008, 2000 and now, honestly. You know, it's been a slow slide since 2008 for a lot of people. It's been a slide from working your ass off to make sure that you're putting enough away in your 401k so that your employer will match at 100%. And you did that for over three or four decades. And you've never been disciplined at anything in your life. But you managed to save and and build up an, a 401k or an IRA and, and you put it into the stock market and you, you might have you know, gone in on the mortgage bond or the swaps and derivatives or you know, this, that, or the other. And wait, what? And then something happens and then there's over $4 trillion. And I said trillion. At the end of the day, in 2008, over $4 trillion in assets and value Gone in an instant. Gone. What? I, re I remember I was a child um, in 2008. Um, I mean, I say child. I was younger. I was like 21. I was still a kid. And just watching my father who worked so hard for everything that we had off of you know a middle school education and some high school training but none beyond that and to be able to have raised two children who were firmly comfortable upper middle class who both went on to college that's a huge accomplishment and he did that by way of you know rehabilitating homes and 
going into the inner city of Indianapolis, Indiana, where it is I grew up, and into those rough neighborhoods that nobody wanted to live. And he, my dad just, he always felt like, just because you're poor, you don't have to live in a slum. You know, that's the kind of man of, from which I sprang. You know, my father is one of the most honorable and most forgiving and most attentive people I know. There would be times he would just shock the hell out of me. I'm like, Daddy, and he would do something. I'm like, I didn't even know you knew that I want. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, so, I mean, he's awesome. And so to watch him, who worked so hard to, to build himself up from, you know, high school dropout to business owner of Indianapolis, Indiana, um, master architect of one of the largest churches in Indianapolis, Indiana, and an owner of, you know, 10 to 12 properties that were set aside and put together um, for those who are lower income. You know, that's beautiful. You know, we built, my family built their entire legacy on giving and on love. God loves a cheerful giver, my dad would say to me, as we are waiting for my aunt to come and pick us up because he gave someone, you know, our minivan. Because why? You know, sister or brother so-and-so has a lot of kids and their car just broke down. So God told us to give it to him. I'd be like, what? But what about me? Um, I mean, that was me as a child, but the principle behind it, the giving, my dad was able, is, is able, he is still very much alive, thank the Lord, not the Lord, um, and he's the coolest if you're ever in Indiana, Indiana, just look for a guy that looks a little bit like me. <laughs> um, my dad still, when faced with a situation where someone is suffering or doesn't have enough, and he has it within his power to not disadvantage himself, and still be able to provide for my mother and our family, he will always do it. He will always do it. And so that's how I grew up, you know? So for me to step out into the world and all around me is just American ire, just American angry people that are just, it's like we turned into adults and suddenly the world stopped caring about us and those who succeeded, great. Those who didn't, you're just kind of screwed. And that's it. I don't necessarily know that that's right, you know? I believe in survival of the fittest. I'd like to say that I'm thriving, but my life could be better, I could be better. So I don't know. So is it that maybe we've established a high standard that no one can live up to and they're angry about that? No. No, I don't think so. I mean, is it that we have stopped talking to one another? Because what happens when someone displays anger openly? What happens is that people back away from them. 
people are concerned and, ooh, let's get out of here before so-and-so, you know, that makes people uncomfortable. People do not like confrontation. They, they do not. They don't like confrontation at all. I love it, but I'm not, I'm kind of odd. <laughs> but, and so because of that, because there has been no confrontation, because there has been no dueling of ideas and principles and dialogue that has been able to hash out a lot of these things, we have all gone to our respective little corners of the world. And in our own little corner, we decided what we believed. Whether it was right or wrong, whether it was based in reality, we just decided. That's it. Yeah. So what ends up happening is that when back in the 90s and early 2000s when things were going well, pre-9-11, back when all that was occurring, people had money to spend. People were able to shop, people were able to invest, people were able to get loans, buy a new car, buy a new house, this, that, or the other. So there was no reason to be angry. But as soon as you take away the stuff, as soon as you take away the opportunity and the going gets tough and you are one among a population of workers who were educated by a system that is based on the Prussian education system geared only to turn out intermediary cog-like workers. Just people who show up, go to work every day, and then go home. That's what they want. That's what the Prussian system is. That's what the American education system is today. We are, we are training people to get up, not really, I mean, go to work, don't really think for yourself as much, but listen to your boss, do everything that they say, and then go home and then come back and do the same thing again for the rest of your life. That's our goal, based on our education system. So when a lot of the institutions, the financial, financial institutions and conventional ways of making money, i.e. employment, W-2, so on and so forth, dried up, corporations left, and then you just had ghost towns. You had people in the rural parts of America and in suburban parts of America just, and especially in urban parts of America, they were forgotten. They were forgotten. I don't know if you've noticed, but the financial system in America is based on consumer confidence. Not the gold standard, not the silver standard. There's nothing backing it up but consumer confidence. And so what that says is that confidence, the confidence of the consumer is currency. It is valuable. It has value. So when the consumer no longer has confidence in the system or the institutions or those who have been put there to safeguard the workings and the fairness of the system, that is when 
our collective American ire ignited within each of us. We never spoke a word to each other, you know, we never said anything to each other, but slowly, in the corner of our eye, our American ire, our American intense anger, our American openly displayed anger grew within us. When it came time to pay this bill or that bill, and there's no reason why we shouldn't have been able to, but we weren't. If not for, you know, very poor banking practices by our financial sector. And I don't like to say, oh, Wall Street sucks, Wall Street sucks. One, I, I, I haven't spent enough time on Wall Street to know if it sucks. I've never even been to Wall Street. But I know that speaking in platitudes and hyperbolic language is only going to further the problem. We have not been specific with one another. Hell, we haven't even been talking to each other. So when you put it all together, you have a situation where thanks to you know the baby boomer generation that is currently in power that was educated largely on the same similar ideals of the late president Ronald Reagan, may he rest in peace um, it was improper to say certain things you use dog whistles to be racist instead because that's respectful that's respectful racism apparently if there is such a thing um so because we were now speaking in terms that weren't really showcasing our true feelings, so now we're cut down to really about 50% of the information that we need to know about one another. You get what I mean? Because we fell, they all, because all of our words fell behind glass because of political correctness, and in the name of civility and respect. The double-edged sword, the other side of that, is that we weren't hearing each other because two things happened. One, we weren't communicating our actual truth because it was viewed as inappropriate, unless you're me, and I, don't, I just don't care. Um, but, and then secondly, people are not stupid. They can look at something and tell whether or not someone is telling them the truth. So what then happened is that you, you realize that everyone around you is lying to you. And I don't mean lying to you like a Truman Show lying to you, and if you don't know what that is, you should watch it. Great, great movie starring Jim Carrey. Um, they're lying to you in a way that everything is edited, everything is censored, everything is kind of nuanced and molded together so that it's not inappropriate or it doesn't make people uncomfortable.